0: All right, uh, if you would find Philippians 1 in your Bible, Philippians chapter 1. Today we're going to pick up where we left off last week in our study through Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And Like I said last week, Paul is now in the, in the meat of his letter to them, in the main body of the letter. And in this neighborhood, though, we're still in this neighborhood where Paul is um, writing to them and reflecting, he's reflecting on his imprisonment. That's what, it's, what he's doing. He's just spending a little bit of time talking about the elephant in the room, basically. I'm in prison. That's, that's what's going on here. Uh, and he's reflecting on that imprisonment, how he thinks about it, and he's teaching them and, and being an example to them about how they should think about his imprisonment and also thereby to think about how they would face any trial they might face. That's the posture we ought to take as we come to passages like we're going to study today. That, that really uh, think clearly and re- realistically about the situation Paul is writing from. And, and it's from that position, what is he teaching us? Um, what example is he setting for? So Paul in our passage today, which will be the verses 18 to 26, it's the second part of verse uh, 18. That's just kind of hanging out there under the next uh, subheading. He has a lot to teach us about the joy and hope every Christian can have even in the most hopeless feeling of situations uh, and the purpose we can find still in the midst of it. So, uh, it's a very encouraging passage or it should be. So if you read it ahead of time and remember I always try to put that passage on the group me at least a day in advance so you can read it before you come hopefully you'll know what I mean if you did that. But let's read it and then uh, we'll we'll lay out how it divides up to see what Paul's teaching us. We'll begin at the second half of verse 18. Paul writes, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Commended to this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray. Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And Lord, would you please, as we study these words, would you give us eyes to see the truth that you would have us to see in it? Would you give us minds to understand it clearly? Would you give us... Um, hearts to embrace and, and, and really um, take in what you are saying to us here through Paul's example and teaching. It's hearts to embrace that for our own life. Give us then wills to obey and, and heed what it is that we're being admonished here to do. And Lord, would you please um, give me the help that I need to teach and teach clearly and teach rightly what this passage has to say, guard me from uh, error, and would you give us all ears to hear what the Spirit is saying in the Word. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you're taking notes, um, here's how I think we can break down Paul's train of thought to get a clear picture of what we can take away from it. So looking at the passage, first I think in verses 18 to 20, when I say 18, I mean that last little bit of 18. 18 to 20, we're going to see Paul's joy. Paul's joy. He's going to begin that section, as we just read, saying, I will rejoice. And then he gives reason for it. In fact, the whole, really the whole passage that we read is his reason for the joy he has. Um, and it's interesting what he says, though, in 18 to 20. And then second, verses 21 to 24, um, we'll find Paul's choice, Paul's choice, which is very instructive for us. Paul begins that section saying, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then he presents an important, what I can see is like an important reflection. It's a noteworthy reflection as a Christian on just the reality of life and death. Um, He he describes it poetically as if it's a choice, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. That's poetic. He knows he's not sovereign over his own life. But he describes it that way, and in so doing, he gives us sort of deep insight into how uh, how a Christian ought to think about the about life while we live it, as well as the prospect of of death that that lays before us. And none of us know when that when that day is going to come. And then the third and final thing we're going to see very quickly at the end in verses 25 and 26 is Paul's plan, where Paul lays out and plans what he expects to do should the Lord give him continued life and time for ministry. And that too is instructive for us because uh, what he says there is what every Christian ought to be about, not just what apostles should be about. So that's how we're going to break it down. And and I want us to, to walk through the text carefully and try to take note of everything that Paul says here. Let me just pause right here. And, um, and, and before we dive into the text and just elaborate on what I just said, that we want to take note of everything that Paul says here. Why, why is that our aim? Why is it not sufficient for me to read the passage and then just, and just talk about whatever I want to talk about somewhere in the realm of what that, that passage is from? Why, why is it our aim when we gather like this and why are we, when we gather in there the next hour, why is it our aim that we want to look, we just want to walk through this follow the train of thought, look at all the words. Why do we want to do that? We want to do that um, precisely because of what we believe about the Bible, which is, incidentally, what we're doing on Wednesday nights this fall. So if you don't come yet to College Bible Study on Wednesday nights at 8, that's what we're walking through this fall is what do we believe about the Bible. And it's pre- precisely because of that is what we it, it influences what we do when we gather so this, just this past Wednesday night, we thought about what Jesus believed about the Scriptures. And the first thing that we saw that Jesus believed about the Scriptures is that he believed in the inspiration of Scripture. And I, I pray that every time we open the Word, just your holy, inspired Word, the word of God. And, and uh, we're going to think more about that in a couple of weeks. But what did that look like for Jesus? What did belief in the inspiration of Scripture look like for Jesus? It, well, we looked at a couple of examples where Jesus um quoted an old testament passage and he quoted well, the old testament passage that he quoted was something that was spoken by the human author of that passage right he wasn't quoting a passage that said and the lord said he just quoted the words of moses or he just quoted the words of asaph and when he quoted them when jesus would quote that psalm of asaph or that comment from moses in genesis 2 Words of Moses, words of Asaph, Jesus called them the word of God. And so that's what inspiration is. It's it's the belief, based on what Scripture itself is teaching us, that while these are historical books that were written down by human beings, when that human being wrote those words, God was simultaneously and without overriding their humanity speaking through that person. So that what that person wrote was exactly what God wanted them to write. That's what inspiration is. And we believe, Scripture, as we'll say this more clearly in a couple of weeks on Wednesday night, we believe in what we call verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal plenary inspiration. What does that mean? Verbal just means the words. We believe the words, not just the thoughts, not just the concepts, not just the ethos of the passage, the words of the passage are inspired of God. These are the very words that God intended us to have and read. That's verbal inspiration. Plenary, P-L-E-N-A-R-Y, plenary inspiration just means all of it. If you've ever been to a a conference uh, or a convention where they have breakout sessions where it's like a small group of people talking about a particular topic And then two or three times over the conference, you go to the plenary sessions where everybody comes together. It's the main sessions. That just means plenary means the whole thing, all of it. So we believe that all of it, every word of Scripture is God's words to us through human authors. And therefore, every word of it is instructive for us and worthy of our attention and our careful thought. That's why we do what we do. Okay? Digression ended. Let's dive into the text and think first about Paul's joy. If you want to learn more about all those things about Scripture, come on Wednesday night. Paul's joy, which, which he lays out for us in verses 18 to 20. So our, our passage, like I said, actually begins at the second part of verse 18 that begins, Yes, and I will rejoice. And in that, you can see, if you've, if you've been able to be here in, in previous weeks, you can see that what he's about to say here is still connected to what he said In previous passages remember what he just finished saying for example what we looked at last week Paul had just in the verses before like going back to say maybe verse 12 Paul had just finished talking about how he rejoiced that as a result of his imprisonment the gospel contrary to what you might have expected the gospel had not slowed down because he was now in jail but the gospel had actually continued to advance even though he was in jail He talks, and that's been his theme from the beginning. He talked about how the gospel was still advancing for a number of reasons. One, because even he, while he was in prison, he was still able to bear witness to Christ to those who had imprisoned him. Perhaps he was even chained to a guard. But he he was able to do it in such a way that he says in chapter 1, verses 12 and verse 13, that... Even in his imprisonment, through his own witness, the gospel had become known through the whole imperial guard. That is an audience that he never would have gotten to share the gospel with had he not been in prison. So through his own, through his own witness, the gospel was still going forth. But then he continued in the, in, the, um, in the verses after that to say, another reason I rejoice in that is because through my example here, he says in verse 14, other brothers have become more confident to share the word themselves. And to preach. So he concludes in verse 18, the first part, that no matter whatever the motives were of those people who preached, some preached out of goodwill, some preached out of envy and rivalry. He says in verse 18, the gospel was still in preach, was still proclaimed, Christ is still proclaimed, and he says, And in that I rejoice. Um, and he begins our the, the next phrase our passage today with, yes, and I will rejoice. So he's about to provide even more reason that his joy is going to continue, right? Even while he sat unjustly in a prison. Look at verse 18 as a whole, though, even though it's split up by a subheading. Twice in that same verse, uh, he mentions rejoicing. And in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Twice in that same verse. And if you remember back to a few weeks ago when we were sort of still introducing this letter, um, I pointed out that in, in this short letter, this short letter that if you just read it from beginning to end, you could probably do it in less than 10 minutes. In this short letter, Paul talked about joy or rejoicing. His joy, his rejoicing, their fighting and teaching for their joy and their rejoicing. He talks about joy and rejoicing like a dozen times in this short letter. You can't go very long at all in this letter without coming against that theme again. And I said a couple of weeks ago that that is indicative of how much joy, and not just, not just happiness, but like joy, deep abiding joy in Jesus Christ. Joy ought to be the characterizing mark of a believer. And, and that helps knowing that, just seeing things like that. That helps in your own life, in your own quiet time. If you're ever doing... Any kind of self-reflection of your own self up against what Scripture says. If you're doing any kind of self-reflection, you can ask yourself, you know, how far am I off the mark? If I can be honest about myself and if I could imagine what somebody else thinks about what what the vibe they get from me when I'm, when I'm around, if 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 the vibe they get from me is one of more complaining and discontentment or bitterness and anger or even overflowing into gossip and slander or crude joking or whatever it may be. Paul's like, joy in Jesus should be the vibe people get from us right off the bat. And he says, being already filled with joy, he says, I will rejoice. He's been rejoicing like we saw in the early verses, that the advancement of the gospel hasn't slowed down since he was in prison. And now he continues that theme of rejoicing. But he's going to talk about his joy now from another angle of his imprisonment where before it was, it was on the, the advancement of the gospel during his imprisonment, now in our passage today, in these verses, it's going to be more on he's, he will rejoice and, and he's going to dive into sort of his, his own state of mind, his own state of mind about his own future during his imprisonment. Like, how's he doing? And he says, even in that, I'm going to keep rejoicing. How do we know that's what he's... Because look at verse 19. He says in verse 18, Yes, and I will rejoice. Verse 19 says, for, anytime you see that word, for, we we don't talk like that because that would sound very stilted and weird. But it just means because, right? I don't say, I'm going to go to Fusacles, for I am hungry. We don't say that, but that's what it means. We know that. It means because. And so verse 19 is about to give the because of verse 18. I will rejoice. Why? Because I know That through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, when you first read that, it kind of looks like he's talking about the possibility of him getting out of prison. Um, That's what, when he says, my deliverance, this will turn out for my deliverance. That's kind of what that sounds like he's talking about, being delivered from prison. I don't think that's exactly what Paul said here. Um, the, not to get too nitty-gritty, but the Greek word that Paul wrote there, translated deliverance right there, the, the Greek word is soteria. Soteria, which um, in every other case that Paul ever used that word, that's the word for salvation. When, talks, when Paul talks about salvation... Soteria—that's what he's saying—and he's not—and and, and 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 Paul had other Greek words at his disposal if he wanted to talk about deliverance. I just don't think that's a great translation. So while some debate it, most people agree that what Paul is talking about in verse nineteen is salvation, not deliverance from prison. In other words, what Paul is showing you here is he does not have his joy and hope set on parole, but on heaven. That's what, he's, that's what he's rejoicing in and to be clear when Paul is talking about salvation here, this will turn out for my salvation he's not talking about this is, he's not talking about the forgiveness of sins or what we call justification. that's already true of him. and he's not even talking about his growth in Christ's likeness or in other words what we call sanctification. he's talking about his glorification like the end of and goal of our salvation when we see Jesus face to face and we become like him because we see him as he is. When, when we are not just free from all sin, but we're free from all suffering. That's the, jo- that's the source of Paul's joy here. Yeah, he's rejoicing, like he said earlier, that the whole imperial guard knows why he's in prison. And he's rejoicing that the gospel is still going out, but he is still suffering in a prison. Like, this is the guy who's still sitting in prison, writing to people who are not in prison. But he, even as he sits in a prison, he, he still has and still knows a, a deeper joy knowing that every passing day is closer to an eternal salvation in Christ. That's what he's saying. And notice he says, For I know. I know. It's not a wishy hope. It's a confident knowledge. Paul if you read through his letters, you know, sort of back to back to back, you'll notice Paul talked about heaven a lot. A lot. And we've talked about that recently. How in other places we, we see Paul thinking about heaven compared to the sufferings here. Remember, we've talked about that. We've talked about a couple of important verses. Romans 8:18, 8, sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. Or 2 Corinthians 4:17. Uh, that this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul thought about heaven all the time. But what is the commonality between those two verses that I just quoted and what we're seeing here? What's the commonality? They all involve suffering. Romans 8, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. 2 Corinthians 4, this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And here in Philippians 1, he's in prison unjustly. And if you think about, which you don't, I know, but if you think about Christian music over the last 100, 125 years, you don't ever think about that and you don't listen to Southern gospel music. But if you, if you did, if you listen to the to, to Christian music over the 100, last 100, 125 years. Um, most of the songs about heaven, when do you think they were written? The biggest proliferation of songs about heaven. When do you think they were written? Yeah, 1930s. During the Great Depression. During a time of difficulty and suffering and hardship. They, they, they didn't want to think about right now. They want to think about what is to come, what is the promise for every believer. And that that helps you understand that when when they did that in the Great Depression and it caused them to write songs about the hope of heaven, they're just following Paul's example. They're just doing what Paul was doing. That goes to show you that difficulty, struggling, suffering, hardship is actually in the whole scheme of things a blessing from the Lord to remind us that this world is not the end of the story. Like, the comforts here are a fleeting mirage. And hardships help us to set our sights and hopes on what is eternal. You're going to see in this passage that Paul did not think about heaven apart from Jesus. Heaven for Paul wasn't just a happy place with no problems. It is that, but only because Jesus is there. How do we know that Paul thought about heaven in that way? Because in verse 23, which we'll get to more in a minute, he, he talks about heaven as departing and being with Christ. That, that just makes... That, the thought of heaven, being departing this life and being with Jesus, that, that is only attractive to us, not, not just if we know Jesus as our Savior and Lord, that's going to be more attractive if we walk closely with him as our friend. And that, and, and, and I say that because we see that in the example of Paul here. Notice what else Paul says in verse 19. Uh, notice what he's, how he talks about the Holy Spirit in verse 19. He doesn't just say, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit this will turn out for my salvation. What does he say? I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That's how he refers to the Holy Spirit there. Specifically, the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And that makes me think about what Pastor Brian has been teaching about in John 14 in recent weeks. Like when Jesus, how many times have you heard him teach and Jesus say in John 14 how Jesus assured his disciples that it was better for us if he go away? It's better for us so that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, could come. Because the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, it, it is like having, he is like having the confident, I mean, the, the constant presence of the Lord Jesus Christ with you in, in, in the Holy Spirit. Because in the text that Pastor Brian taught about last week, Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And in that context, it's not talking about the second coming. It's talking about, I will come to you in the Holy Spirit, in the helper. It's like having it shows it shows that Christ himself is imparting his his constant presence, his presence to us in the Holy Spirit. Um yeah, and Paul has has his sights here set on heaven and and the fact that he calls the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, just shows the close fellowship with Christ that he had in the in the Holy Spirit. Who gave him the strength to persevere into that future day? It's like he would say later in this letter, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. So he's talking about, he's talking about salvation here. This will turn out for my salvation. But if 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 he's talking about salvation here, heaven, how do we understand him saying that in verse 19, through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ? What? What do the prayers of the Philippians have to do with his salvation and hope of heaven? It's not hard to understand the role that the Holy Spirit has in us to prepare us for that day and to assure us of that coming day, to give us confidence of that coming day. But what what do their prayers, through your prayers, what do their prayers have to do with it? Well, if you think about verse 19 in connection with verse 20, it gets a little clearer. Because what does he say in verse 20? It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but, with, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And the words that are prominent in verse 20 there, at least in my reading, are not at all ashamed and full courage, right? Um, I, will, I will be not at all ashamed and with full courage Christ will be honored. And it's with one of those, those two phrases that I believe their prayers come into play. When Paul says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, I believe he's still talking about the day he stands before God on the last day. That he won't be ashamed on that day, right? And that's just, that's just related to back, back to what he already said back in chapter 1, verse 11, if you look back at verse eleven, when he talks about on that final day, we will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That just that, and I said on that day when we talked about verse eleven, that that doesn't just mean we'll be filled with the fruit of a righteous life, and on that day, uh, when we see him face face, we will we will we will erupt in glory and praise of God. That, vert, that that Greek, what he says there, actually can take two meanings. Not only that we will praise God on that day, but that filled with the fruit of righteousness, God will commend us. God will commend and praise and, glory, and, and give glory to us, not because of what we did, but what, what he did through us, because of our faithfulness. And you can understand how in our passage, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit will help Paul in that. But when he says in verse 20 that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, that is most definitely where their prayers come into play. Um, Paul, if you, read, if you read Paul's letters, Paul routinely uh, asked his uh, churches to pray for him to give him boldness, to give him courage to give him strength so you think for example uh i think uh, tom recently taught on it uh, the, the the passage in ephesians 6 at the end of the the uh the the armor of god and paul says pray for me that that i might be bold as i ought to speak get that the lord would give me boldness or you think about um second corinthians 1 when he talked about how man i went we went through a deadly trial we despaired of life itself Uh, but you helped us through your prayers, right? Um, And it's here that through the prayers of the Philippians in verse 19, or verse, uh, yeah, verse 19, their prayers of verse 19, it's through their prayers there that he will persevere to the end with full courage in verse 20. All of that contributes to Paul's joy, the hope of heaven despite present circumstances and the help of the Philippians prayers in the middle of present circumstances you know and we can learn a lesson from that like certainly it's a reminder that to me is a reminder of the necessity of the church for each other that we help each other walk faithfully with Christ day by day we pray for each other Um, but it's also a challenge to me to, to think about heaven with Christ more All right. I think that's more joy producing than the fleeting satisfactions I can have currently right in front of me that I can uh, taste and feel. Yeah. But as we move on in the text, Paul highlights his joy indirectly again. He doesn't leave the topic. just gets a little more indirect when you move on in verses 21 to 24 and you see Paul's choice. So Paul had just said he needed the Philippians to help pray for him so that with full courage Christ will be honored in my body, comma, whether by life or by death. And now, he's going to reflect on that idea of whether he lives or dies. He doesn't know which one he's going to do. And he says in verse 21 famously, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's funny. You you almost might expect him to say, Uh, Based on what he's already said, for for to, to me to live is something else and to die is Christ. Like that's when we are with Christ. That's when we see him face to face. To die is Christ. But he says to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does it mean when he says to me to live is Christ? What does that mean? You might jot this reference down. I think it's expressing essentially the same thing as what he says in Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20. You may have memorized that verse at one point. If you haven't, go for it. Um, Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh... I live by faith uh, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what to live as Christ means. Uh, that, 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 that I no longer live, what, what does that even mean? Because you are alive. What does it mean I no longer live? The old man in me no longer lives. The old man there, uh, in, in me no longer sets the agenda for my life. I know that Christ lives in me. That He's the one who gives me truly life, and he sets the agenda for my life. And so, therefore, this life that I live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's the direction I'm going. To me, to live is Christ. Frank Thielman says, such statements can only mean that Paul's relationship with Christ was so close that his entire existence derived its meaning from his Lord. Jason Meyer says, it means that Christ completely defines the meaning of life. That's what he says. Paul has already said that as he lives, he walks with the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So to live is fellowship with Christ. He says in verse 22, it's going to mean for him fruitful labor. If he goes on to live, fruitful labor, but to die, he says, is, is even more gain. Paul says at the end of verse 20, uh, 22, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. That might strike you as an odd thing to say uh, because it, like you can choose that. <laughs> no, that's not him thinking literally that he can choose what, when he lives and dies. He knows the Lord is sovereign over those things. He's just saying... Christ's presence is so good and so constant and so real that no matter whether he lives or dies, the Lord is going to be good and enough for him. He's going to say in verse 23, it's not not one-to-one equal. He says to depart and be with Christ, that is better because there's no suffering there. There's There's suffering here. To depart and be with Christ is far better. Let me pause right there. That's just a theologically good thing to know. People, people ask all the, uh, fairly regularly, what happens to you when you die? Well, that verse tells you. Uh, it gives you an idea for, for a Christian who, who dies. That's what's going to happen with all of us if we die before Christ comes back. Right? If we die before Jesus returns... Our body goes in the ground, and our spirit goes to be with Christ. To depart and be with Christ is far better. Our spirit goes to be with Christ, and it's at the second coming that for us and for every believer before us, Adam and Eve, it's then when he comes back that our spirits who are with him there, we will return with him, and our bodies will be raised. We will be reunited with resurrection bodies like the Lord's. Paul is simply saying, of course, that the best option would be to literally be with the Lord. But Paul knows, as he says in verse 24, that if he lives, the Lord is with him and the Lord has work and purposes for him with the Philippians. And that just reinforces what we've been talking about since the beginning of the letter. All this time, since the very beginning, Paul has been been emphasizing that gospel advancement and the glory of Jesus, where his glory has not been seen clearly that is the that is the top priority in life period period not just for apostles period for people anybody any and certainly any christian and he says he says he calls it later uh, in the first chapter that that is the most excellent thing and here he's simply demonstrating that very determined attitude in himself if he dies he's with christ if he lives it's fruitful labor for christ and please do not read that thing, yeah, like, well, he was one of the apostles. No, Paul lived his life in such a way that he repeatedly urged his readers, follow my example. So Paul was living a life that all of us should live. Paul's choice is our choice. It's a challenge to us to ask, it, do, 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 we, do I see the goal and purpose of my life as, as Paul saw the goal and purpose of his can, can I honestly say, to me, to live is Christ. Christ defines the meaning of my life every day I wake up. Christ doesn't just define the meaning of my life on, two, on Sunday morning or on Wednesday night, but on, on Tuesday afternoon. Christ is defining the meaning of my life. And every day I wake up, I see it as fruitful labor for Christ. Everything else I do, everything else you do, you're, you're, you are here as a student at Auburn or Southern Union or wherever. Your, your role in that, that's why you live in Auburn. But you, so that may feel like that is the primary thing, I, the reason I'm here and what I'm about and what I'm doing. But it's not. It's just the providential platform that he, God has given you to be used for Christ. Christ. Because that's the primary thing. If you live, if you die, it's gain. Set your hope on heaven. If you live, even in this role I have as a student or whatever, how can I leverage that to bear witness to Christ? And as we look at the final verses, before I try to give you some time around your tables, and I'll try to be very quick with this one, we see Paul's plans in verses 25 and 26. 26. And Paul begins, verse 25, simply expressing confidence that he will not only live, he does believe that he'll eventually be freed from prison. And uh, when he says, I will remain and continue with you, and he says in verse 26, because of my coming to you again, he thinks he's going to not be in prison forever. And he says, here are my plans for that day or through that day. I'm going to work for your encouragement. I'm going to work for your joy. I'm going to work for your growth in Christ, your progress in the gospel. I'm just using the language of verses 25 and 26. I'm going to work for your progress and joy in the faith. I'm going to work so that in me you have ample ample cause to glory in Jesus. Right? We don't have a whole lot of time to spend. I just want to remind you again that when you read that, Paul is writing this from prison. Right? Right? He's riding from prison, but that is what is dominating his mind. It's the prospect of one day being with Christ, but until then, working completely for the progress and joy in the faith for other people. He says he's convinced this is why the Lord will allow him to continue and maybe even one day be released. And that's how this, is, this point is just an elaboration on the last one, that to live as Christ. Remember that Paul is explaining why he, he rejoices. He's working for the Philippians' joy. Paul is, 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 is saying this is not just the Lord's, the Lord's plan. He says this is the most joyful life. Part of, what, part of what it means to walk by faith and not by sight is just to trust Paul on this and give your life as fully to fruitful labor for Christ as Paul did. And in that, find the joy he found as you walk like he did with the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ.